Part two today in Revelation chapter 11, we're not going to get all the way through it, I'll get uh, through the middle section, we'll finish the book of, uh, or the, the, yeah, the book, the uh, chapter 11 uh, next week, um, but, uh, but yeah, we're, we're there in Revelation chapter 11, and you know, as we get into it, um, I'm reminded of an incident that, that I was involved in uh, back in, uh, in the mid-90s. Um, uh, I, w- I, was, I was in the fire department, as, as many of you know, and, and uh, on this particular evening, uh, we, we were dispatched to a fire uh, in Indian Wells. I worked in Indian Wells in a very affluent community. The city motto is multum in parvo, which is Latin for many wealths. Uh, and so we pull up to this house that, that you know, huge house, opulent house, and it is fully engulfed in flames. Um, and uh, what had happened was a Christmas tree caught on fire and uh, just burned so hot and so ferociously that it caught the contents of the, of the room there on fire. And so when we pulled up, the fire was burning so intently that it was blowing out of the, uh, the garage uh, where it had spread to, and our, our engine was parked uh, just right out in front, and at the end of the call, we realized that our lenses had actually melted on the side of the engine. That's how much radiant heat was coming out. When you fight a fire, it's not like the movies. Um, you know, you see guys going into a burning building and you can see everything. A fire's not like that. You, you cannot see your hand in front of your face when you fight a fire. So you, you actually have three different crews that are working in tandem. You get there and you got a couple of guys on a, um, on a hose line that, that, that go through and make an interior attack, either through the front door or wherever the best access is. And so that was me on this particular night. I'm on the, I'm on the hose line along with my partner, and we're making the attack. And there's another, there's another guy that's right there with you, but he's not going in with you. He's setting up a huge fan that's just filling this place up uh, with, with, with air, just, just pressurized air. And then you got a crew that goes up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof to, to, to ventilate. Now, here's the thing. So fire needs basically three elements to burn. you got to have heat, you got to have fuel, and you got to have oxygen. And so it seems counterintuitive that you show up at a place that is burning so hot that it melts the lenses on your engine that you're going to add fuel to the fire. And, and, and yet, that's what we do by sticking this huge fan in there. Like, as I'm going in the room, and yeah, I can't see anything, so I'm just crawling just with the hose line trying to find the seat of the fire. And you know when you get to the fire, because it gets hotter, if that's possible, and you see a faint glow uh, through the blackness, and so you just start spraying water on it. But you're feeling the wind, just this tremendous amount of air that's just hitting you as this fan's in the doorway. So again, it seems counterintuitive because it's giving the fire exactly what it wants, but with that in combination with the guys cutting a hole in the roof, what happens is, is that that pressurized air and now a place for that air to escape, it causes the smoke to rise. And, it's, and you there in the room can physically see the, the layer like a blanket just start to rise up and your visibility improves. Simultaneously, the hot gases uh, are now being ventilated and so the temperature goes down in the room. And so it makes it much easier to, an effect, to effect an attack. All of that there, you're ready. You know, we'll, we'll go out and now you're ready to go train. Um, but all of this to, is, it comes to my mind as we're in, here in Revelation chapter 11 because the point is, in my story, what looks like chaos is actually very controlled 
and what seems counterintuitive is actually precisely planned. And that's what we find here in Revelation uh, chapter 3, God's precise plan being executed with God in complete control. Revelation chapter 11 verse 3, And I will give power, the Lord says to John, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now chronologically, remember, uh, the events of chapter 11 are during the pause between the 6th and the 7th trumpets, the judgments, the wrath of God being poured out. And so this is happening during a pause between the 6th and 7th trumpet. And what we have in view here is the events that are taking place during the seven-year tribulation. Last week, uh, we saw the first three and a half years of the tribulation period reflected in verse 1 with the temple being rebuilt and with God instructing John to assess the worship that was taking place there. And then we also saw the last three and a half years of the tribulation period reflected in verse 2 with the Gentiles trampling the city uh, for 42 months. a time frame of three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation period. Here now in verse 3, the focus shifts back to the first half of the tribulation period, that first three and a half years. And the focus shifts from the worship, of the, or the worship at the temple to the witness of two men. And notice that they are supernaturally empowered, these two men. And we know they're men, by the way, just because the Greek makes it, it uses a masculine noun. So when it says two witnesses, it's written in with a masculine noun. So we know that these two witnesses are two men. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're supernaturally empowered there for 1,260 days. This is roughly three and a half years. This corresponds to the first half of the tribulation period. And, and they, they're empowered, you know, for, for a very specific period and for a very specific purpose. And the purpose that they're empowered by God to, to witness is that they're to do just that. They're to witness and to prophesy. Uh, and they do so, take note, sat, clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a rough, coarse, heavy cloth uh, garment that's, that's worn to symbolize mourning, to symbolize grief, to symbolize humility. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Jacob wore it when he thought that, that Joseph had been killed. <coughs> David commanded that the nation of Israel wear sackcloth when Abner was murdered. He also himself wore sackcloth after he sinned by counting uh, the people. Uh, both the prophets Isaiah and Daniel wore sackcloth. Um, And the object lesson here is that the witnesses are mourning a Christ-rejecting world. That's what they are mourning. And not only is the world at large at this time uh, rejecting Jesus, so also are the people at the temple. 
Understand, all of this takes place, these, these two witnesses, they're witnessing outside the temple. But last week, you'll recall, John directed, uh, uh, God directed John to measure the altar and the people. They're talking about what was going on inside the temple. And what we saw was that as the focus for a, the, the altar and the people worshiping there, what that tells us is that they were worshiping at the brazen altar. This is the place where animal sacrifices were made for the atonement for sins. And what that tells us is that the worship of the people, hey, they're, they're not worshiping Christ, they're worshiping their works. That's basically what the, the, the picture is. Their focus <coughs> was all wrong. The very place where, where the truth of God should be proclaimed wasn't being proclaimed. And so what does God do? He provides two witnesses to testify of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible makes it very clear throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, Matthew 18, John 8, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 5, Hebrews chapter 10. The Bible makes it very clear that every matter is to be confirmed and established by two witnesses. And so Paul, speaking in Lystra in Acts 14, he added that. Basically, he said, God never leaves himself without a witness. And, and we see this affirmed. We see it with Noah and the flood. We see it with Lot and Sodom. We see it with Elijah on Mount Carmel. We see it with John the Baptist, that God always provides witnesses to the truth. And right here, we just hit the pause button. <clears throat> this, is our, this is our application here, is that God has called you and me to be witnesses to the truth. We are to serve as witnesses, we need to be willing and available to speak out. And I want you to take note here, where does this witness take place? With these two witnesses, it takes place outside the temple. Outside the temple. Where is your witness most often going to take place? It's going to be outside the church. Which is a scary proposition because you think about it. This, we're on our Sunday best here, like... We, at least I hope we are. This is typically, we, you know, Sunday. It's the, the, the Lord's Day. You know, we're going to go to church. And, and we, you know, we, we put on, you know, some decent clothes. And, and we, you know, run a comb through our hair. And we, you know, uh, go and, and we're endeavoring to seek the Lord. And we put our kids in, you know, the, ministry, the children's ministry and all. And we're, we're trying to draw close to God. And typically, you know, Sunday, church is the time when we would, we would you know, be the most spiritual. And then Monday hits. And then Tuesday hits. And then when, and by the time Friday gets here, I mean, I've done lost my salvation, man. It's just gone, you know, if that were possible. Caveat, it's not. But you know what I'm talking about, right? And their witness takes out place outside the temple. Our witness takes place outside the church. And you just take a walk with that. What kind of witness are you being? What kind of a witness are you? How available to the Lord are you in your witness? I've told this story before. You've probably heard it. But a buddy of mine, Bob, uh, had a friend who had a heart attack while he was working out at the gym. He was a young man and uh, went into full cardiac arrest at the gym. They're doing CPR, you know, the paddles, the whole bit. 
They thankfully revived this guy, but now he's in, you know, the coronary care unit, the ICU there, at, at, down at Loma Linda, and, uh, and Bob calls me up, he's like, man, I got this good friend, he doesn't know the Lord, but he, you know, he's, <laughs> he's a sick man, would you go with me down there to, to, to share the gospel with him? I think, I mean, he, he should hear the gospel right now. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to go down. So I go down with him. And, and Bob introduces me to his buddy. He's like, hey, you know, this is my friend. He's also my pastor. And man, I just thought, given what you've gone through, you know, you might want to hear a little bit about Jesus. And this guy said, hey, let me just stop you right there. He said, I died and I went to the other side and there ain't nothing there. It was just completely black. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he told me what to say, and he said, say it right now. And so I, I, I just, you know, greeted the, the man. I said, hey, listen, man, I, I appreciate your experience, um, but, but, man, I'd I really love to speak to that. And what, what you don't know about me is that I, I used to be a paramedic, man, and, and, and I've, <clears throat> I've resuscitated lots of different people, and I can tell you physiologically a little bit about what happens. And I said, you know, there's, there's, the, there's this difference. There's this thing called clinical death, and then there's physical death. And I said, you know, clinical death is when you stop breathing and when your heart stops. Clinically, you're dead. But, but that's not physical death because, you know, your, your cells don't all just die the moment you stop breathing and your heart stops. They, they, they've got some residual oxygen. It takes a little while for those cells to die. Now, your brain cells are the most sensitive, but even they stay alive for several minutes. So, so you know, maybe if you go without oxygen for, for five or six minutes, you start to get brain damage. And, and then, you know, if, if, you, if you're left in that state for longer than 10, 12 minutes, well, then, you're, my friend, you're physically dead at that point. And so, so listen, what you've got to understand is that you, you weren't physically dead you were clinically dead. And because you were not physically dead, you didn't go to the other side. Now, I thought that was a great explanation. If he didn't have all the tubes in his body, he would have gotten up and, and killed me. He lost his mind. He was so angry. He looks at Bob. He's like, who is this guy? Why do you bring this guy here to talk to me? What, you know, what is going on? And, and I would love to say that I was able to, to lead that man to Jesus Christ at that moment. But no, we left the hospital with one very sad Bob who was just overwhelmed, like, now this guy's never going to speak to me again. And, you know, gosh, Pastor Ted, I kind of thought you were better than that, you know? I brought the big guns, I thought, you know? Now, thank you, Jesus, a couple of years later, his friend did receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. He, he, he was saved and is walking with the Lord. And we thank God for that. But see, the story illustrates an important point. Sometimes being a witness will cost us. It'll cost us, you know. Uh, in the Greek, uh, the word witness, it, it's martis. We get the word martyr from that. Uh, Webster's, we all know the definition of the English word martyr, right? Webster's describes it as one who is killed because of his beliefs. And, and you know, the English definition is in large part due to Christianity. There have been millions of Christians killed over the centuries for their witness of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, the, the, the statistics are overwhelming. There's, there's an organization called Open Doors USA that tracks these things. 
and, and they, they say every month 772 acts of violence are perpetuated against Christians. 214 churches are destroyed every month, according to this organization. And they say every month 322 Christians are killed for their testimony, killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's another organization that also keeps this data. It's called Christian Freedom International. And, and their numbers actually suggest that, that the, the, the killing of Christians is actually much higher. They estimate that 288 Christians are killed in the world every single day for their testimony in Jesus Christ. Phenomenal, right? I mean, there, there is intense persecution when you want to witness for Jesus Christ. The idea of this Greek word martis in the Greek, it simply means this. It means to avow what you've seen. That's what it means. It means to avow what you have seen. In other words, your witness, it cannot be theoretical. It has to be experiential. David Guzik put it this way. He said, if we will be witnesses, we must first have something to witness And that is our own personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Then we must have the power of the Holy Spirit to bring forth the story of what we have witnessed effectively. And if you'll notice in verse 3, that's exactly what God promises. Look at what he says there. He says, and I will give power to my two witnesses. Listen, when you share your testimony, when you're led by the Holy Spirit, when, when God has called you and commissioned you, which by the way, he has. He says to us, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, and lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. And so we have been commissioned to be witnesses. And when we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, listen, it's an unbeatable combination. God promises that he'll give you The power to do that. Now, you have to take a walk with this idea of witness because a big part of it is actually sharing the word of God. You know, there's a a famous quote, you know, uh, preach the gospel when, you know, whenever, uh, preach the gospel whenever possible and if all else fails, use words. Um, and, And, you know, that's cutesy and all, but, you know, the fact of the matter is we have to use words. We have to, we have to understand, listen, Everybody is a sinner by nature and by choice. Sin means to miss the mark. We've all blown it. We've all got guilt and shame and burden. And the Bible says that because we've missed the mark, because we are not perfect, because we're sinners, we're going to hell. But God loves us so much that he gave Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. And, and he wants all to, to, to come into a saving faith in him. And so the Bible says that if, if we'll believe in Jesus Christ, that, that he's the Son of God, that he, that, that he died on the cross for our sins in our place, and if we'll confess that God raised him again from the dead, then we will be saved. And, and we should all be in that place to where we're ready to give that testimony. But you know, if you're living your life in a way that, that, you know, somebody might, I mean, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Somebody once told me this story. They worked at this place for like 26 years, and they were getting ready to retire, and somebody said to them, you're a Christian? I'm like, that's a failure, dude. 
That's a failure. So if you're living your life in such a way that people would go, oh, oh you're, you're a Christian? I never would have known it. Yeah, people should know. I mean, we've encountered people in the community. I go, that, that dude's a Christian. I know for a fact. Just watch. Look at how, he, how he's living his life. Look at what he's doing. And you strike up a conversation with him. Yep. Faithful follower of Christ. You know? So if you're living in such a way that people aren't, you know, aren't seeing Christ in you, then, then you haven't primed the pump to be able to share your testimony. And so... So, you know, there's this, there's this power that comes from God when we're, when we're willing to step out and live in this way. And so the picture that we have here in Revelation chapter 11 is the Word of God being preached in the power of God by these two witnesses in Jerusalem. And their focus is to prophesy and to give testimony to Christ, to the gospel. And notice in verse, verse 4, interesting description he has here. They're described as two olive trees and two lampstands standing before God. Now, <clears throat> this is an interesting description, and it comes from Zechariah chapter 4. And I won't have you turn there, but I'll just give you the, sh- the shorthanded version. What's going on is you've got Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4, who's the governor of Judah, and he has the responsibility to finish rebuilding the temple. And the work had stalled, and Zerubbabel needed encouragement to carry on the work. And so God gave Zechariah a vision of golden lampstands that were meant to stand in the temple. And in his vision, what Zechariah saw was that they were self-filling lamps fed directly from two olive trees. That's where this reference comes from. <clears throat> you see, one of the more tedious tasks in the temple duties of, of service um, was the constant care of the lamps. And so, uh, in addition to cleaning them and maintaining them and trimming the, wa- the, the, you know, the, the wicks and all this stuff, um, they had to be continually refilled with oil. And so, Zechariah sees this, this self-filling f- you know, lamp there, and, he, and he's trying to figure it out. And so, basically, he goes to God, he's like, I don't get it. What, what's this all about? <clears throat> so, God answers him. Let's put it on screen for you. It says this, so so he answered and he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. In other words, you know, this huge task of rebuilding the temple, this huge mountain, hey, you know what? You're going to, it, that's going to, it's going to become a plain. It's the, that mountain's going to be taken care of. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. He says, look, it's not by might and it's not by power. Now, might refers to collective strength. You know, we, we have, you know, a thing called aircraft carrier diplomacy sometimes. You get some rogue nation, they start, you know, acting up. And so the president will say, I'm going to send an aircraft carrier battle group and go park it off your shore. And, and it's a projection of might is what it is. It's like, hey, let us just remind you of what we can do to you if you, if you don't knock it off right now. And so you get an aircraft battle group that shows up there. And this aircraft carrier, you know, is the central part of this. It's surrounded by three nuclear submarines plus a, a boatload, no pun intended, of other support ships. 
They've got Tomahawk cruise missiles. They got, you know, multitude of fighter planes on there. They got nuclear weapons on there. They got everything on there. It's like your country's done with this one group. Now, that's a projection of might. Now, a projection of power is when one of those individual planes takes off of that aircraft carrier. That is an in, that's individual strength, power. So he says, look, it, it's not by the resources of many or by the resources of one is the message that God is giving. He's saying, look, it's by my spirit. In other words, it's not going to be by your cleverness. It's not going to be by your ability or your physical strength that the temple's going to be rebuilt it's going to be by the Spirit of God. And this is what God wanted Zerubbabel to know. He, look, the Holy Spirit's going to continually supply your need. Just as the oil trees in the vision were <clears throat> continually supplying oil to the lamps of the lampstand. Now, just right there, just stop, pause button on that. The, 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 the application of this truth that I've just described to you in Zechariah chapter 4 is that this... Listen, God wants his supply and our reliance to be on the Holy Spirit continually. That's what God wants in our life. And maybe today your temple's broken down. Maybe today you've hit something hard in in your walk, in your life. Maybe today something has blindsided you and sucked all the life out of you. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed. God's word to us here is firm and it's strong. Look, it's not by might that you're going to overcome that. It's not by power that you're going to overcome that. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's the word of the Lord for for someone today. That listen, you don't don't have to white knuckle this thing. It's not about doing good, trying harder. It's not about, oh my gosh, I just can't. I just can't even think straight to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Look, that cartoon of Bugs Bunny pulling himself out of the hat defies the law of physics. It is not a reality. You pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, is, is, it, it defies the spiritual law. It's not going to happen. It's by the Spirit of God. But here's the point of this illustration here in Revelation chapter 11. Just as, it, as it's used, this, this whole story is, is alluded to, and this, this is how these two witnesses are described. Here's the point. These two witnesses have a unique, continual empowering from the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. And just as Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor of Judah were raised up in the power of the Holy Spirit to be lampstands and witnesses for God in rebuilding the first temple, so also these two witnesses of Revelation 11, they're going to likewise execute their prophetic office in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that brings us to an interesting question. Who are these two witnesses? This is one of the more famous parts of Revelation, of the book of Revelation. People want to know who the two witnesses are. And there's lots of speculation about who they are. So we'll entertain that for a few minutes about who it could be. Well, for starters, some people think it's Joshua and Zerubbabel because of the reference to the, to the lampstands and all and how it ties into Zechariah 4. So they're like, well, maybe this is some sort of a <clears throat> reappearing of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Could be. Some scholars believe, many scholars believe, that one of these witnesses, at least, is Elijah. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is because there's specific prophecies in the book of Malachi that say that Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord. 
And so what you have right now, for this reason, Jews are always looking for the return of Elijah. They, you know, in setting their Passover table meal every year, they set a place for Elijah. Uh, You may recall Jesus at one point, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, among the, the choices that he throws out, he says, well, some people say you're Elijah. John the Baptist was continually being asked if he was Elijah. Why? Because the Jews are always looking for the return of Elijah because it's prophesied in the book of Malachi. And so that's one of the reasons why people go, well, this is Elijah. Another reason why people think it's Elijah, or at least one of these witnesses is, is that some of the miracles that he does here are similar to the miracles that Elijah did. You, you know, you may remember the famous miracle where Elijah's going to, to battle with the, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, and, the, and he's like, you know, I'll tell you what. Here's the sacrifice. Here's the, you get the wood for the offering. You call down fire from your gods and see if it'll burn up the sacrifice. And they're just, I mean, and it's hysterical to read it because he's just mocking them the whole time. And then, you know, these 450 prophets of Baal, they're cutting themselves and prostrating themselves on the ground. And, and, and Elijah's making fun of him. He's like, at one point, I kid you not, he goes, hey, you know what, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Can't hear you. He actually says that, you know. <clears throat> and, and then it comes to Elijah's turn, and Elijah's like, well, you know what, before I call down fire, you know, the, the, the wood's too easily ready to be burned. Soak it with water. And he hasn't poured so much water on the whole thing, it fills up a ditch all around the thing. And then he calls down fire, and not only is the sacrifice consumed by the fire that he calls down, but the 450 prophets of Baal, they're all consumed as well. And so people go, well, gosh, you know, these guys are calling down fire. Elijah called down fire. There's, there's another example. Some of the same miracles are being worked. Perhaps the biggest reason that people think it's Elijah is because Elijah never died. In 2 Kings chapter 2, we see him caught up in a whirlwind to heaven. And people will go, well, you know, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. Elijah didn't die. So therefore, you know, this is, this is when he's going to come back and he's reserved, his death is reserved for this and that's when, you know, he's, he's going to go. Which, by the way, is a reason for why some people believe, no, this, you know, one's Elijah and then the other one is Enoch. Because Enoch's also a dude who never died. And so people go, well, this, these two witnesses might be Elijah. And Enoch, you know, and, uh, you know, Genesis 5, 24 with Enoch, he, he, God simply took him, you know, but I don't know if that really holds water because like there's millions of people that are going to be taken in the rapture, you know, and so, and if that's, if that's the sole criteria, I don't know, but you know, this is, this is some of the hypothesis. Let me tell you another real possibility of who one of these witnesses might be. One of them might be Moses. Um, Moses appeared with Elijah, you might recall, on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And <clears throat> think about that. There in Matthew chapter 17 at the Transfiguration, you've got Moses and Elijah who represent the law and the prophets, right? The sum total of Old Testament revelation. And who are they meeting with? They're meeting with Jesus Christ, right? Who, who is the New Testament revelation, right? And, and he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and so there's kind of a nice fitting there. Another reason why you, it might be Moses is that like Elijah, Moses performed a lot of the same miracles that we see manifested here. 
Uh, Moses destroyed his enemy with fire. He withheld the rain. Uh, he turned water to blood. He, he brought down plagues and so on. And so these are several of the, the ideas of who these could be. Personally, I think it's Elijah and Moses. But here's the point. It's all speculation because nobody knows. Nobody knows. God doesn't tell us. And I think there's a reason why he doesn't tell us. He doesn't want our focus to be on who they are. He wants our focus to be on what they do. On what they do. And what is it that they do? They testify to the truth. That's what God's called you and me to do, to testify to the truth. And listen, for that, the world hates them. Absolutely despises them. Verse 7 says, When they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And then, now get this hatred, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. These guys are, are Jewish, they're believers in Christ, but they're Jewish, and in the Jewish religion, you know, you're, you, it's, you're supposed to be buried the same day. So this is the height of hatred that they say, <clears throat> no, we're not going to, I mean, even Osama bin Laden got to be buried in accordance with the dictates of his faith. There was, there was that, you know, level of respect for his religion. There is zero level of respect uh, for, for their religion. Their bodies are allowed to de- decay and rot right there for three and a half days. Um, Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another... You've got this Antichrist Christmas now going on. We're going to buy gifts for each other. We're going to exchange gifts. Why? Because men of God are, are kid, killed. They're dead because of the two prophets, right? Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, whenever you take a stand for Jesus and for the truth of the gospel, the world will hate you. Absolutely, it's going to happen. If you doubt that, go to the comment section of any news article. You watch how quickly the comments turn anti-Christ, anti-Christian. If you doubt that, listen, try posting what the Bible says regarding any controversial topic on social media. Put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, you know, try posting Romans 1 where God calls homosexuality shameful, aberrant, abhorrent, foolish, You post that on on social network, you watch how you'll be treated. Try posting from Ephesians chapter 5 where God says, wives are to submit to husbands as unto the Lord. You want to post that on somebody's, you know, that million woman march will tear you up, you know. Jesus said this, listen up. He said, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, and so it hates you. Absolutely it does. And that's the condition on steroids here in Revelation chapter 11. And that's why God identifies the city in which this happens in this way. You see it there in verse 8. He says, it's the city spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where Jesus was crucified. Now that's our clue, that it's Jerusalem, right? We know it's Jerusalem, but God says spiritually, it's Sodom and it's Egypt. 
What does he mean by that? Well, Sodom is synonymous with perversion, and Egypt is synonymous with a bondage to sin. And so he says, yeah, it's Jerusalem, but it's really, at this time, it's a city that is absolutely, completely perverted and in bondage to sin. Now, the key thing I want you to notice here is verse 7. This counterintuitive part there in verse 7, it says there, when they finish their testimony. That's when God allows the Antichrist to make war against them, to kill them, to overcome them, to, 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 to kill them and their bodies, they're rotting in the street. When they finish their testimony. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, God's obedient servants are immortal until their work is done. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? Look, you are immortal until God's work is done with you. What he's called you to do, calling on your life, until God's purpose is with you, for you, in you, through you, is done, you are immortal until that point in time. Man, what a cool comment that is. I think of all the times in my life where God's protected me. I, you know, as in Banda Aceh, you know, Muslim Central, ministering the gospel, my face shows up on the front page of a magazine, Muslim magazine. The title is Kill the Infidel. And there's me on the front page. Me. Like, I'm like, somebody showed me this, you know, after the fact, I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord, for sparing me from that. <clears throat> and having seen the picture, I could remember who took it and where we were at and the remoteness of the location. I'm like, they could have killed me right there. I remember the time when I was on the island of Sumbawa. I'm talking to three Muslims on the beach, and one of the guys wanted to kill me. He was so mad at me because I'm telling him about the gospel of Christ, and, and he just didn't want to hear it. Well, within days of when I left, they burned the church down that I was speaking at, and several people were killed. And I'm like... You know, I wonder if that kid that I was talking, I call him a kid, he's a teenager, on the, you know, the beach, I wonder if he was one of them that did it, you know, I don't know. I remember when I was on the island of Borneo, and, you know, you've got the original headhunters, the Dayak tribe on the island of Borneo. They, they still eat people. As a matter of fact, when I went over to Borneo, the, they had the Maduran tribe and the Dayak tribe, and the, in, the government of Indonesia had moved the Madurans from one island to Borneo, and they were intermixing these two tribes um, together. And it, it, over time, the Dayaks began to resent the Madurans, and so what did they do? They reverted to their headhunter ways, and they killed them and started eating them. Like, real story. Like, there were pictures I saw when I came because we came to, to do uh, relief because the government had come in to shut it down and put guys in, you know, a... a, a uh, camp, you know, to, to save them and all. And so we're going over there to do medical relief, preach the gospel. I get there. I'm, I'm, people are showing me pictures of guys riding down the motorcycle. Guy, you know, two guys on a motorcycle. A guy on the back's got two heads in either hand. They're telling me stories that they're, they're selling body parts on the side of the road like, like a lemonade stand, you know, and people buying them, eating them. And while I'm there in Borneo, we're in the middle of the jungle, we're driving, and there all of a sudden there's a roadblock and, you know, this guy with two teeth in his whole head and a very big machete. And, and you know, we pay him and he lets us, you know, go through. And they're like, yeah, that's a Dayak. I'm like, mommy, you know, I want to go home right now. This, this next story, I kid you not, this happened, true story, um, counseling situation, years ago, I got a guy, it got so bad, we had to call the police, had to call CPS, the cops didn't arrest him, but, but they're taking his kids, 
and, and I'm ministering to this guy. It's been, it's been a long haul. It's been months. It's been years of relationship trying to minister to this guy. And I'm the guy that, that, that call, had to call CPS. So, and I don't remember the circumstances, how this happened, but he had to go from, it's, it's all going down. I'm there. He has to go from one location to, to another location. And so he's going to drive his truck. So, so, you know, hey, why don't you ride with me? Okay, so I'm in his truck with him. I go, I go looking for my, my seatbelt. He goes, oh, there's no seatbelt. Well, I notice he's got a seatbelt on. And he tells me later on, confides in me, I was thinking about killing you. I was thinking about turning the truck into the tree and crashing into the tree because I had my seatbelt on and I was so, so angry with you. I'm like, thanks for sharing that. Appreciate that. Listen, God's obedient services are immortal until their work is done. We can't operate in fear. We have to operate in faith. We have to be bold in our faith. And that's, you know, Jesus said this. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's something these two witnesses, man, they understand it completely. The Apostle Paul said this. He says, for me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Paul, we're going to throw you in prison. We're going to throw away the key. Cool. To live is Christ. Oh, well, we're going to kill you. Great. To die is gain. I mean, what do you do with a guy like that? And this is how these two witnesses live. Now, there's 36 references in the book of Revelation to the beast. And, and here in verse 7 is the first reference. God says that these witnesses have done their job, and now he allows Satan through the Antichrist... Uh, to kill him, which is, by the way, why I use the fire analogy in the beginning of this, because it's counterintuitive. It's like, well, wait a minute, why do you allow Antichrist to kill him? Listen, and it's because of this, it's part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. See, he's preparing to show the world his glory. Verse 11, now after the three and a half days, their bodies laying out there, CNN's there, Shepard Smith reporting live, three bodies still here, After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great great fear fell on those who saw them. You think? Verse 12, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. CNN, reporting live, resurrection, rapture. Verse 13, in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Earthquakes always a symbol of God's judgment. And the rest were afraid and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, while the world thinks they've won, God raises his witnesses in the sight of the entire world. And not only are they resurrected, they're raptured, they ascend to heaven in a cloud just as Jesus did, and now we're starting to understand what God's doing here. The counterintuitiveness of his plan. See, because the end of verse 12 says that their enemies watched them in great fear. And then just to make sure, God allows this earthquake and a tenth of the city to be destroyed and 7,000 people were killed. And what's the result? Here it is. The rest were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they were saved. As a matter of fact, you know, you would hope that some would repent and believe, but the text doesn't seem to indicate that. What it most likely means is this, that in dread, they acknowledged 
who God is. In their dread, they acknowledged who God is. They recognized that, listen, God is who he says he is. And here's what I want you to hear right now, just as we come to a close. Don't bring glory to God like that. Because God will either be glorified when he pours out his wrath, or he's going to be glorified when he pours out his grace. And today you have a choice. These guys don't have a choice. They've made their choice. It's past time for their choice. It's all about God's wrath at this point. But today you have a choice. You can be the recipient of God pouring out his grace, or you can be the recipient of God pouring out his wrath in your life. Either way, God will be glorified because he is holy and he is righteous. He's true. He's faithful. He's just. He's perfect. None of those things that we are. But yet God, because of his great love, stands ready just to pour it out. Pour out his grace. And God's glorified either way. His desire, because he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. His desire is to pour his grace out. He loves you so much, he gave Christ to die for your sin. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves there crawling over Jesus' dead body. God did everything he could to pour out his grace upon you. He wants to pour it out upon you. Verse 14 says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Look, God's clearly warned us. He's made a way for us to be saved from the woe that is to come. We need to take him up on it.